and welcome again to LifePoint. Uh, if you'll open up your bulletins, there's some notes to follow along with with the message today. Uh, and then uh, if you have Bibles, go ahead and turn to Judges chapter 16. We're continuing our series on Samson, and we're going to be talking about the famous story of Samson and Delilah and seeing what God has for us in that story today. Uh, as you are looking at your bulletin notes, uh, there's some fill-in-the-blanks uh, on it that we'll follow along with. And on the back is normally life group notes, but again, no life groups this summer, other than parties and fun times and going to the beach and game nights and things like that. So if you're not in a life group, still an opportunity to get involved. Go to the info booth for more information. Uh, it'll be a blessing to you. Well, as we wanted to get started this morning, I can't do any Cowboys jokes because uh, Pastor Cecil is here this morning, and so i gotta got to be nice now. So... Uh, but I thought I'd talk about my kids for just a moment, because they're always entertaining. Uh, so I have four kids, uh, the second of which is Parker. He's almost eight years old now. Uh, he turns eight in August. And he's always been a unique child, all of them are. But uh, Parker in particular, uh, he has this saying where he, uh, he'll do something and just go, oh, but it's just so tempting. And, <laughs> and so... We're going to talk about temptation today, and Parker is a, a great example of that, and in particular when it comes to food. So uh, all of the kids uh, are tempted by various things, as you, as you know if you have kids, uh, but Parker in particular loves food. And we were at a birthday party once, it was a carnival party, and this was incredible. They turned their whole house into a circus and a carnival, and they had games set up all over, and all, it must have taken them three weeks to clean after the fact. It would have been nuts. But they had all of these games just everywhere. And uh, we were walking around making sure that all the kids were having fun, you know, and they're all going in different places. And we, we kept looking around at all the games. Parker's nowhere to be seen. Like, where in the world is Parker? So Cora and Zoe, they're, they're off playing games. Elliot's off playing games. Parker, nowhere to be found. Finally, we walk into the kitchen. And he's at the buffet line. <laughs> he's got a, a happy birthday hat and a huge plate full of stuff. And he's just chowing down. He's like, I don't need no games. I just want the food. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Parker knows how to party. And when he sees the buffet, he's just like, oh, it's just so tempting. But one of the cool things about Facebook is that it reminds you of the past. And so I went back through to see all of the times that Parker was tempted by things. And it started way back when he was just two years old. Um, and so if you'll put up this first post. Uh, so this is... While my wife was cleaning, she looked and he had taken one single bite out of every piece of fruit that we had. <laughs> so he saw it on the counter, it was just so tempting, one bite out of each one, and uh, there you go. So uh, that was the first thing. At three and a half years old then, my wife posted this. We didn't get a picture of this, but at 2.25 a.m., she said that I found Parker on the floor of the kitchen in the dark eating ice cream straight out of the tub. <laughs> so he's three and a half years old, we come downstairs, He's got the freezer open straight out of the tub. And I want you to notice something that one of the people that likes this is Derek Earhart, Pastor Derek, because he loves ice cream too. And so he was proud of Parker for this, this event. So four and a half years old, a couple years later, uh, I got a picture behind his uh, bedroom, uh, one of his nightstands, and there's just a stash of candy. So, you know, oh, it's just so tempting. And so he goes after all the ca candy. I don't know why Cecil likes this one. I don't, <laughs> I don't know, he's causing trouble. And then finally, almost uh, seven years old, just a year or two ago, here he is at Pastor Leah's birthday party, and uh, uh, Miss Angela's trying to chase him away from the cupcakes because, ooh, they're just so tempting. Well, his phrase, oh, it's just so tempting, is all about he sees something that he wants, and in particular food, and he desires it, and it compels him to action. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, is seeing things and desiring them, desiring things that our own eyes see, and how that got Samson in trouble, and what we can do to combat that. Last week, we talked about how Samson's eyes were a problem because he saw truth 
through his own eyes. He defined truth through his own eyes. And in our culture, we do that all the time, that we try to say that my way is my way. No one else has the right to tell me what's true and what's false, what is right for me and what's wrong for me. I'm going to define it my own way. I'm going to do it my own way. And we talked about how ridiculous that is, and it doesn't even make sense. It leaves you in the dark, grasping for anything that you can get. The only way that we can live a meaningful and true life is if we have an objective truth, something to latch onto, and that's the light of the glory of God that we can go after. Well, this week, we're going to talk about Samson's eyes again and how he saw things and he wanted them. It wasn't just that he defined his own truth, but he was going after whatever his own eyes saw, and that caused problems. So starting in Judges 16, verse 1, it says, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw, he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. So Samson again, just like before when he saw the Philistine woman and he said, I see her, she's right in my eyes, I'm going to go after her. Now he's seeing a prostitute and he says, I want that, and he goes after this prostitute and goes after her. Whatever he sees, he goes after. Number one in your notes, temptation is desiring what our own eyes see. Temptation is desiring what our own eyes see. We sort of know this, right? You're not tempted by something you don't desire. You're tempted by things that you want, that you desire. Tempted by things that you see, either in your physical eye, see, or in your imagination, that you imagine that something might be good, and so you desire it, and it's tempting. James 1 defines what temptation is in verse 14. It says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. The key phrase here is lured and enticed by his own desire. You see, there's a huge difference between following after the desires that God has for you and following after the desires of your own eyes. We have our own desires, and often they are contrary to God's desires. And as we talked about last week, when you are going after your own truth, your own meaning, your own purpose, your own desires, and your own will, if that's contrary to God, then you're in the dark. You don't have meaning. You don't have purpose. You don't have joy. You're in the dark. We talked about how there is an objective truth, and God's eyes knows what that objective truth is. He actually defines good and evil. We saw in Judges chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 13, it said, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, there is right and wrong in God's eyes, and we need to define what that is to determine what that is and to use God's eyes, his truth, to define the way we live our lives, not our own eyes going after our own desires. As we talked about last week, this isn't a popular teaching, right? A lot of our culture says, I get to define it my way. But not only are there consequences here and now in terms of how your life looks and what happens in your life. You remember the cycle of judges, right? The people of Israel doing what's evil in the sight of the Lord and what happened? There were consequences. They were enslaved. They ended up slaves to those who they were, whom they were serving. They ended up not living the purpose that God had for them because they were following after what their own eyes said. But there's also more than just the consequences here and now. Sometimes we sort of get away with things, right? But there will be one day when we stand before a holy God and we have to give an account for our lives. And on that day, there will be nothing that slips through. R.C. Sproul, who's one of my favorite teachers, he has a podcast. He passed away last year, but uh, if you're ever looking for good teaching, if you go online, he's got some good stuff on there. But uh, R.C. Sproul was once asked how to respond to someone who doesn't believe that sin exists. And R.C., without missing a beat, said, steal his wallet. <laughs> yeah. Right? 
We all have this innate sense that there is a right and a wrong. And we simply can't live our lives if we don't believe that there's not a right and wrong. But if we try to define that right and wrong ourselves, it ends up conflicting with what other people define and it ends up with nonsense. It ends up with relativism, relativism that doesn't give you something concrete to hold on to. Right and wrong, true and false, is defined by our creator. So what happens when we chase after our desires? This is something that has happened since the beginning of creation with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It had eternal consequences. Look at this in uh, Genesis chapter three. It says, so the woman saw, she saw with her eyes, she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise and she took some of its fruit and ate. Do you see the progression of temptation here? First she sees. She sees something, and then second, she desires it. It says that it was the delight to the eyes, and it was to be desired. And then, as James says, desire gives birth to sin. We desire something, and that compels us to act on it. That's what temptation is. You see, temptation exploits our desire for happiness. God built in us a desire for happiness. All of us have the desire for joy. The problem is, are we looking for joy in the right place? Are we looking for happiness in the right place? God's planted that in us because the ultimate happiness, the ultimate joy is found only in him. And yet we get deceived and we think, oh, if I just go after this, then I'll be happy. Or, oh, if I just go after that, then I'll be happy. When really, true happiness is found in God alone. Blaise Pascal, he was a 17th century scientist and a philosopher. He said this, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it. It's the same desire in both, just attended with different views. You see, temptation takes advantage of this desire that we have to be happy. And it says, you would be happy if you just do this. You would be popular and you would be happy if you just share this little tidbit of gossip. You would be happy, you would get some enjoyment if you just click on this screen, if you just pursue this, if you just purchase this thing, then you would be happy. All of these things are deceptions that say that you can find happiness in what your own eyes desire. But if your own eyes don't have the light of God, you're not desiring the right thing. And as C.S. Lewis talked about at one point, he said that we, our desires are too weak that we play in the mud, basically, and we think that we've got happiness when infinite joy is afforded us by God himself. Our desires should be for God and God alone. And so temptation is based on desire, and desire is what? Based on anticipation. It's based on anticipation. Now, this is something that I read about a, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, actually, about scientific studies that show that anticipation is a powerful influence on our lives. And in fact, there's studies that show that the idea of anticipating something is sometimes even more powerful than experiencing it. I know this from our own lives and our family vacations. I, I learned a while back, surprising my wife is not a good idea. She has a schedule. She has plans, right? And surprising her often ruins those plans. And so it's really difficult to surprise her. I was trying to surprise her for her birthday, and uh, I had a group of ladies get together to invite her out to, to lunch one day. And uh, as we were getting close to it, she said, oh, by the way, I've organized a zoo trip, and it was on that day for all the kids. And so here, all the kids are excited about going to the zoo, and I'm trying to like say, it's gonna be bad weather, you know, I'm trying to give excuses. And finally, we just had to tell her, look, you've got a birthday thing. Surprises just don't work, right? But it turns out that 
the anticipation of something is powerful. It actually helps you kind of enjoy it twice in a way, right? And so with family vacations, she plans and plans and plans, and in that planning, she's anticipating all of the joy that she's going to have on this family vacation. And that gives her this sense of happiness as she's anticipating the event. Anticipation is a powerful thing. James Clear, who wrote a book called Atomic Habits just recently, said this, it's the anticipation of a reward, not the fulfillment of it, that gets us to take action. You see, when we experience something, when we do something, we don't know for sure what it's going to be like, but we can anticipate it. And temptation uses that anticipation. Temptation says, if you do this, then you'll be happy, and you anticipate that, and you say, I want that happiness. I'm going to stretch out and go for this, even if it doesn't cause you happiness. Have you ever done something that you anticipated greatly and you thought, this is going to be amazing, and it's a letdown? It happens all the time. It happens with our vacations, in fact. Not that our vacations are a letdown, but my wife gets what's called the post-vacation blues. That on the last day of vacation, as we're getting ready to board the plane, her face gets a little downcast. She's like, it's ending. All that anticipation built up to this great event, and she enjoyed the event, and then as it comes to its conclusion, it's a letdown, because it's over. And that happens even with things that we enjoy. If there's anticipation towards this thing, and there's temptation towards this thing, and we, we go and do this thing, and it's enjoyable for the moment, it doesn't last, it doesn't ever last. And so there's always a letdown, unless what we're anticipating is God himself. Because God is infinite, and he'll never, ever, ever let us down. Albert Camus, who's a postmodernist author, he wrote a short story called The Adulterous Woman. This is an interesting story. It, it talks about a, uh, a husband and wife who just kind of had a dull, boring marriage. And they go on this business trip. And so they go on this business trip, and, and the husband is, is focused on work. He's focused on all sorts of things. He's not focused on his wife. And the wife, one night, waits for the husband to go to bed. And after he goes to sleep, she's laying there, and she starts she starts anticipating and desiring the things that she could go do that night. And she said, you know, I, I'm just in such a boring marriage, I, I would have joy if I could just experience the nightlife once, if I could just go out and just do whatever I want to one night. So she wakes up and she sneaks out of bed as her husband is sleeping, and she stays out all night doing all sorts of things and comes back at 6 a.m. just before her husband wakes up and goes to bed. And as she's starting to lay there, she just starts sobbing in this story, and the husband wakes up and says, what's wrong, what's the matter? And she says, nothing, just nothing. You see, there's nothing lonelier than experiencing what you think is the ultimate joy and finding out it's nothing. It's just nothing, it doesn't last. You take a hold of that temptation and you grab it and it disintegrates in your hands into sand, it's nothing, but God is not nothing. God is infinite, and God will never let you down. One of the amazing things is, we talk about letdowns and we talk about getting over the hill. That's never, ever going to be the case for the Christ follower. You see, because of the nature of eternity, if you are with God in joy and happiness and peace with him for 10,000 years, as the song says, there's no less days to sing his praise than when you first began. There's millions and millions of years after that. No matter when you are in history, there's always more goodness in the future than there is in the past if you have God. 
There's always more in the future than in the past. That is the ultimate power of anticipation because we will never ever get to the point where we'll say that we've gotten more good in the past and now we're on the downhill with God. We're over the hill with God. That's never going to happen. Every single moment, not only does God fulfill our desires here and now, but we can always, always anticipate more and more and more and more good in the future. And if we get this in our hearts, oh, temptation wouldn't have any pull on us at all because nothing else can give you that kind of infinite joy and infinite happiness. Everything else outside of God will let you down. But God does not let you down. He's got more grace in the future than you've experienced in the past. No matter when it is, it's always the case. So let God open your eyes that you don't follow after what your own eyes desire and see, but that you would follow after what he desires and he sees because what he desires is for your good eternally, now and forever. So number one, temptation is desiring what our own eyes see and the opposite of temptation is desiring what God desires and that is for your good and for your joy. Continuing with the story of Samson. It goes on in verse 2 and says, The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. So he's with this prostitute, and all of a sudden, the enemies come and surround the city where he is. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and he pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. You see sin, temptation, following after what he saw. He saw a prostitute, he desired her, and he went into her. Doing that put Samson in a dangerous situation, and all of a sudden he was surrounded. He was trapped. And that happens with us. As we pursue temptation, we can be trapped. We can be surrounded. There are consequences here and now. But then we don't know why the story says, but for some reason, Samson got up at midnight. Maybe it was God that prompted him. Maybe it was just a sense of guilt that prompted him, or maybe that was his plan all along. But he gets up and goes to the city gates and finds that he's locked inside. And he uses his God-given strength to break through the gate and actually carry the gate away. Are you using the gifts God has given you for your purposes or for his? Here, Samson's using his strength to get out of a sticky situation that he himself caused because he was desiring and going after what his own eyes saw. God had given Samson a great gift and he wasn't using it for the purposes of God. He was using it to get out of sticky situations that he caused himself. Are you using the gifts God gave you for you or for him? But Samson continues and he sort of survives, right? He gets through these sticky situations and it's gotta give him a sense of pride that I can pursue what my own eyes see. I can go after a prostitute and, you know, I know that it's wrong. I have this guilt in my heart, but yet, it, you know, my wife didn't find out or I wasn't surrounded and killed by the enemy or, you know, I got through, it's okay. And the more you follow after temptation and the more you do this, the easier and easier it gets to keep going because you convince yourself that it's okay. You harden your heart and you say that this is going after this temptation, it gave me joy, it's a letdown, I gotta do it again, I gotta do it again, I gotta do it again. And all the while you're inching closer and closer to that cliff where you might fall off because temptation never satisfies. Next time it's a little easier to give in to temptation. And this is what happens with Samson. Verse four goes on, and he loved this woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Now, interestingly, Delilah means languishing trouble. Languishing trouble. So if you're named Delilah, I'm sorry. But 
you don't want to mess with someone whose name is languishing trouble, right? So he, he loved this woman, Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. Samson pursued his eyes again with Delilah. He saw her, he loved her, he went after her. But now he's not just in a bad situation, he's actively going after something that's trying to destroy him, that's trying to bind him, that's trying to overpower him. And that's exactly what happens with temptation. We can start out small, but temptation ultimately, number two in your notes, is temptation is not a path to pleasure. Temptation seeks your destruction. Temptation is actively seeking your destruction. James 1, verse 14, says it like this. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. That much we read already. But look at this next part. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Did you catch that, that sin grows? Temptation isn't just one little thing. Temptation wants to grab a hold of you and pull you, like a rubber band pulling closer and closer and closer to the edge because temptation, when it's fully grown, brings forth sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And you're falling into nothingness and you're falling into the consequences of what you've got and you face God on that last day and you have to account for what you've done. Temptation brings sin. Sin brings death. This happened all the way back in the Garden of Eden. You remember that as Eve and Adam ate that fruit, whatever that fruit was, it was the forbidden fruit. It was just one little thing. You'd think, that's not a big deal. All they did is eat a piece of fruit. Parker ate a whole bunch of pieces of fruit. <laughs> Thankfully, we hadn't forbidden those fruits, although I guess we have to forbid those fruits. Have to be a little more explicit with kids, I guess, right? But all they did is eat this fruit, and yet it was disobedience. It was sin. It was temptation. And what happens? It spirals. It spirals more and more. And as you look at Genesis, so in that story, God curses the ground. He curses creation. He curses Adam and Eve and says that they will die now, that it brings forth death because of this temptation. And now there's sin and there's disease and there's decay. There's all of these things that entered the world. But then take a look at Genesis. And the story of Genesis looks like a spiral that goes down and down and down and down as there's more and more rebellion. And ultimately, you get the, the world becomes so evil that God says, I have to destroy it with a flood and only save a couple. God's mercy is still at work in the life of Noah. But it got worse and worse because that's how temptation works. It doesn't seek your pleasure. It's not just a one-time thing. It wants to pull you in and grab a hold of you, and it seeks your destruction. It actively seeks your destruction. That's not what God's desires seek. God's desires seek our good. And yet we get convinced with our own eyes that, oh, that's good, I'm going to click that, or I'm going to go buy that, or I'm going to go gossip in this way, or I'm going to go with this relationship. And we start thinking that this is going to give us pleasure. It's not. It's actively seeking your destruction. Use the light of God to judge. Should you do this or shouldn't you? And run away from temptation. It says in Genesis, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Sin doesn't want what's best for you. Sin is against you. It's contrary to you. Don't go after it. The cycle of judges said the people did evil in the sight of the Lord, and then there's consequences. And even if you get away with it on earth, remember, there's a day when you stand before God. R.C. Sproul that I talked about before, 
He also was asked one day, when you get to heaven, what will you ask God? And Dr. Sproul said, he said, I am actually less concerned about what I will ask God and more concerned about what he will ask me. I want to know what he's going to ask me. Are you following after God's purposes or following after what your own eyes see? So number two, temptation's not a path to pleasure. It seeks your destruction. So going on in the story with Samson and Delilah, verse 6. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson says to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other men. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, but he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Now this is incredible. Samson lies to Delilah, but did you catch that he didn't just say no? You read this, and you see Delilah is actively trying to destroy Samson. It's obvious to everyone but Samson. Samson, for some reason, entertains her. He stays with her. She's actively saying, how would I defeat you if I wanted to defeat you? And he thinks, oh, it's just an innocent question. I love you. <laughs> and so he, he tells a little fib, right? But he still entertains the question. He thinks, I got this. I'm strong. Nothing can defeat me. I'll just, I'll kind of play with this temptation a little bit. I'll kind of mess with it, right? He entertains the question. There was a 2009 study of smokers at Northwestern University. And it was interesting. They did this study where first they took the, the, the smokers, they gave them all a test. It was a fake test, but it was supposed to, to ask basically if they, uh, if they could withstand temptation. So it was a test to see, are you good at impulse control? And it was a fake test again, but they took half of the people and they said, you are really good at withstanding temptation. And they took half the people and said, you're no good at withstanding temptation. And so the people who were really good at withstanding temptation and the people who weren't good at withstanding temptation, or so they thought, all sat down and watched a movie that included people smoking, and they had to have a cigarette with them. Now, the people who were told that they couldn't withstand temptation, they most of the time took the cigarette and hid it somewhere. They didn't even want to see it. They didn't want, because they knew they're not good at withstanding temptation, so I'm going to hide it. I'm going to try to make sure that I don't accidentally smoke the cigarette. The people who thought that they could withstand it, they held the cigarette or put it on their desk, something like that. Well, the people who thought that they could withstand temptation were three times more likely during that movie to pick it up and smoke. The only difference was one group thought that they could withstand it and one group couldn't. And the, the group that thought that they could stand up to temptation is the one that failed. Samson, as he's with Delilah, he's got to be thinking, I got this. I've gotten out of so many situations. I've got strength. No matter what I tell Delilah, I'll get through this. It'll be fine. And so he keeps messing with temptation a little bit more and a little bit more. And yet, the people who have that kind of pride are the people who will fall the most. We've got to run from temptation. 1 Corinthians, actually, let's do note number three first. Do not try to reason with temptation. Run from it. Do not try to reason with temptation. 
run from it. 1 Corinthians 10 says it like this, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Anyone who thinks they can withstand temptation themselves take heed lest they fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He'll provide a way of escape. Now, this, this verse is taken out of context so much, and I've, I've heard it taken out of context, and I've probably used it out of context myself. I've, I've thought about it out of context, and that is just this phrase, you will not be tempted beyond your ability. You will not be tempted beyond your ability, and we think, the Bible says we'll not be tempted beyond our ability. I'm a Christian. I got this. No problem. Temptation comes my way. <clears throat> I'll, I'll stand up to it. There's nothing that can bring me down. But what does it say right before this? It says, take heed lest he fall. He who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. It doesn't say that you won't be tempted beyond your ability because you have this ability to withstand any temptation. What it says is, God will give you a way of escape. God will give you a way of escape. It's interesting because this is something I didn't understand about temptation and standing up to temptation until just this study as I was looking through this. And that is that the Bible doesn't say that you should stand up and stand tall to temptation and, and, and get right in its face. It says run. It says run. It says God will give you a way of escape. Escape means get away from it. Go somewhere else. Don't mess with it. It doesn't say there's temptation over here. Let me inch a little closer and a little closer. And let's see how close I can get because nothing will make me fall. It says I see temptation. I'm getting away from here. I'm going somewhere else. I'm running to God instead of what this is. Jesus warned us about temptation. He said watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. As a Christian, you may not want to go after temptation, but your flesh is weak. And if you get yourself into a tempting situation over and over again, if you keep looking with your own eyes so that you desire things that are not of God, you will fall on this earth because the flesh is weak. God is with us, but God gives us escape. He gives us a way out. Run. Run. Samson demonstrated this. He got closer and closer to Delilah. Look what happens. He keeps, Delilah keeps asking him over and over again as he, as he tells lies. He says, you know, it's these fresh bowstrings, and he says it's a new rope, and then he says that, you know, if you braid my hair in a certain way, Samson's inching closer and closer to the thing that will destroy him. And all the while, we're looking at Samson and saying, why are you doing this? What? How stupid do you have to be to keep answering Delilah's questions? You know exactly what she's going to do. And yet, our own lives are exactly the same way. We inch closer and closer to that thing that will destroy us. If someone observed your life, would they say, how stupid do you have to be to keep doing that? Get away from it. Get away from it. Run. Run. Someone today needs to stop trying to stand up against temptation and just run. 1 Corinthians says, he will provide the way of escape. It doesn't say God will... Uh, let you be tempted, and then he will give you strength to stand up to it. He says you won't be tempted beyond your ability to run, to run, to get away from it and run to God, run the other way. In high school, I was in a class called Advanced Chemistry, 
And advanced chemistry was an interesting class because it basically was a planning period for the chemistry teacher. And uh, we just got to do whatever we wanted to. So there was no you know, lectures, there was no tests. It was just like a chemistry lab and it was like, what do you all want to do today? So there's people like throwing magnesium into water to watch it explode and like just, you know, just messing. It was, a, it was only offered one year because there were so many problems that were introduced by this class. <laughs> one of the problems was me. And I knew that I wanted to be a scientist when most of my scientific experiments in high school failed. And that was okay. But one of the experiments that I did, one of the things that I wanted to do, I, you know, chemicals, that, that was fine, but one of the things that I wanted to do, I wanted to make like a magnetic rail gun, right? And so I'm in high school and I'm playing with electromagnets and I wanted this thing to be powerful. And so I, I take wire and I coil it around and I make this electromagnet and everything and then I get a 100 volt power supply that plugs into the wall and I set it here and it's got alligator clips. And I attach the alligator clips to the electromagnet and I put a nail next to it and I see, you know, will it move, you know, and everything. And I'm, I'm doing this experiment. The nail didn't move. I was like, my electromagnet doesn't work. Maybe the leads on the, like, maybe the alligator clips are not attached to the, the wires properly. I'll just adjust the connection. There's a tip here. And that is, when you're going to adjust a connection, turn it off first. So I had one hand kind of here and I reached over to grab this alligator clip, and the power of electricity is amazing, because as I touched this alligator clip, my hand clenched around it, and my other hand, which was near the other alligator clip, but not on it, jumped to the other alligator clip. And here I'm grasping these two clips, and just shaking and holding like this. And it's just, it's pain. And I'm just there with these, these two things. And I'm like, I can't let go. It's got me. Temptation is like that. It, once you get close to it, it wants more and more of you. And it will try to grab you and grasp a hold of you and not let you go. And now you're in, you're in deep in temptation. Or here I'm in deep with this electricity and I'm shaking. If I would have stayed in that spot, I would have died. There was one thing I thought I could do, because I couldn't open my hands, and that was to run. And so I turned like this, and I ran. And the cord in the back of the power supply pulled out, and it gave a green flash and shorted out the, the, the couple classrooms in that area of the school. And that was the end of that class. When temptation has a hold of you, run. Run. It's the only way out because it tries to grab a hold of you. It tries to get you to inch closer and closer. And that's what happened to Samson is that it's got a hold of him. It's pulling him. And she keeps asking these questions and he keeps inching closer and closer to the thing that will destroy him. Run. Turn around and run. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. He will provide a way of escape. Turn and run. Someone today, it's time to run. And that's not just... Let's not over-spiritualize this either. When we talk about running, we're talking about running from temptation, turning around, repenting, and running to the light of God, but it's not just in a spiritual sense. Sometimes we're talking physically too. If you find yourself in a tempting situation, get out of it. If you're home alone and you're tempted to click on something, go to Starbucks, go do something else, get out of the house. If you're with an, a coworker and you're tempted, Go somewhere else where you're together with other people. Get yourself out of situations that are tempting because the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Turn and run. Change your environment. Remove the source of temptation. Wouldn't Samson have been a lot better 
If once he see, you know, even if he stumbled with Delilah, he saw her, he desired her, he was with her, she asked the question, instead of entertaining the questions, he should just say no and leave. I know that you're after my destruction. I'm out of here. Oh, his life would have been different then, wouldn't it? And yet he kept entertaining her. He kept inching closer and closer. We have this false confidence sometimes that because we have the Spirit of God, we can mess around, we can play with it because God will get us out of any situation. But temptation seeks your destruction, not your pleasure. Turn and run. Judges 16 says, going on in verse 15, it says, and she said to him, Delilah said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. You see, Delilah's evil intentions were to learn his secrets, but even more than that, and this is exactly what temptation does, it wants your heart. It wants to take a hold of your heart. Every temptation shares this goal. It wants your heart. Romans 6 says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? In ancient Rome, slavery was typically, not always, but typically, a lot of times, it was indentured servitude. It was where someone would voluntarily say, I've got a debt or I've got some reason that I'm going to volunteer, basically, to be a slave. And it wasn't pleasant all the time, it wasn't a great thing, but sometimes you would say, I will serve you, I will be your slave. And that's what we do with temptation. If we continue to go after it, it says that you are a slave of those who you obey. You put yourself in that situation. But if we have eyes that focus on God and if we go after God, we are a slave of righteousness. We are a slave of the God who loves us, who desires nothing but our good. And isn't that the kind of master that we want? Isn't that the kind of leader that we want? Someone who desires our good, someone who desires pleasure and who desires joy and infinite peace and grace and everything that's good. God doesn't desire our destruction, he desires our good. Turn and run from temptation and go after God. So number three, don't try to reason with temptation, don't mess with it, don't try to stand up to it, just turn and run, get your eyes back on God, go after him. Desire, to, desire God, desire to be like him, and it leads to righteousness and joy. But Samson didn't run, and look what happens to him in verse 17. Samson told her all his heart, he gave away his heart. And he said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God. Remember, someone who's supposed to be dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and like any other man. Verse 19, she made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks on his head. Then she began to torment him. Is this someone who loves him? Is this someone who wants his good? She begins to torment him. She takes away his strength. She steals his heart, and now she's tormenting him, and his strength left him. Verse 20, and he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza, bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground the mill at the prison. Once again, Samson gives away his heart. He was chasing after his own eyes. He gives away his heart, and now he ends up blind. He ends up a slave. Verse 22, though, it says, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it has been shaved. It's a strange statement right there, but it shows that there's hope. There's something that God is still doing. Even though Samson went so far that he gave away his heart, God is still at work. God's still doing something. There's still some hope there because God has compassion and mercy. 
Verse 28, then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. When Samson realized that all he had was lost, that he had gone after the wrong things, he finally turned back to God because God is compassionate and he has mercy. Number four, repent. Jesus has set you free. Repent. Jesus has set you free. Adam and Eve's introduction of sin in the Garden of Eden introduced temptation and sin to all of our lives. We were all born as slaves to sin. And being born as slaves to sin means that we tend to look at what our own eyes see and we want it and we go after it all the time, all the time. But God is compassionate and merciful and he draws us. Micah 7 says, who is God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. Does he not retain his anger forever? Because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all your sins in the depths of the sea. You see, being a Christian doesn't mean that you are perfect. It means that you want to live according to God's light. You want your eyes focused on God, but the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. We all still sin. We all still fall to temptation sometimes, but God is compassionate and merciful. And he says that even when you do mess up, he'll throw those things in the depths of the sea from before you are saved and even after you are saved. If you just continue to look back at him, keep looking back at him, he will throw those things into the the depths of the sea. When Jesus died on the cross, it paid everything for us. It paid everything for us. There is no penalty anymore because he saved us. And when we are baptized, it's a picture of that. It's a picture of going into the depths of the sea. It's a picture of going into the water and coming out brand new. No longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to God, slaves to righteousness. No longer blind and chasing after the, the darkness that our own eyes see, but now raised to life with God's light in our eyes, desiring what he wants for us and going after him. Water baptism is an incredible picture of that. And we've got baptisms coming up on July 28th, I think. If you have not been water baptized, it's such a powerful picture of what God does in your life as a believer. If you haven't been baptized, you can go to the info booth and sign up. So how shall we respond that God has saved us? Romans 2 says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. We're to repent, we're to turn around and run and run, but not just run away from sin, run to God, for he's the source of everything good. Don't wait, repent today, run to God today, run away from temptation today. Today is the day that your life can change if you would just get your eyes focused on him, no longer chasing after what your own eyes see, but what God has for us. We'll close with Romans 6. Romans 6 verse 22 says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, raised to new life, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification. Sanctification meaning that we grow more and more like him. We're not made perfect immediately, but we're growing more and more like him as our eyes are on him and we're running toward him. And its end, the end of sanctification is eternal life. Eternal, by definition, it's an infinite reward. It's something that we can anticipate and desire, not just now, but forever in the future. It's much greater than anything temptation could possibly promise us because this is infinite and it's so good. And then it says, the wages of sin is death. There are consequences. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. Wages are something you earn. Wages are something you earn, and we've all earned death. But it says the free gift of God, something that cannot be earned, but is simply received. The free gift of God is eternal life. And this gift is not just eternal life. It doesn't just mean that we live forever. It means we live forever with joy, that we live forever with God, that we live forever apart from sin, without temptation. Listen, we talked about running that you want to run from temptation, but you don't have to run forever. The amazing thing about God is that he promises that one day he will be back and he will abolish sin and he will abolish temptation, he'll abolish disease, he'll abolish death, he'll abolish everything that stands in our way of being eternally in fellowship with him, of being together with him. He'll abolish it all. You don't have to run forever. There will be a day when you are with him. Oh, that day, may it come soon. Let's go after him. Let's run to him because the reward is worth it. So number four, repent. Jesus has set you free to live with your eyes on him. Will you close your eyes and bow your head this morning? God, I thank you for this morning. And I thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to just worship you together. It's so amazing when we get to worship you together. And God, I just thank you for your word and for the fact that you have promises for us, that you are faithful and true, and that you give us eyes to see that, would you set anticipation in our heart, not of the things our eyes see, but anticipation of the goodness of being together with you, that every day of our life we would go after you. God, for those in this place that haven't turned to you before, would you work in their hearts? Would you call them and help them to understand that all they need to do is just receive the free gift? It's not something we earn. It's a free gift. And then may we all live in light of that free gift, that your kindness would not lead us to live however we want to, but that your kindness would lead us to repentance, that we would turn and run away from temptation, but even more, God, that we would turn and run to you. In Jesus' name, amen.